I'm Pam Druckerman, and this is Tell Me What You Really Think, where I sit down with innovators and changemakers to talk about the role of the media in these unsettling and chaotic times we're living through. My guest today has seen many times in media, starting out when he was only 16, which is crazy. And since then, he has set countless records and is responsible for some of the most iconic covers and ad campaigns in recent memory. He is a dear friend and fellow Connie Nas colleague who recently published a memoir of his life, A Visible Man, which has reached into the top five on the Sunday Times bestseller list in the UK. He took over as editor-in-chief of British Vogue in August 2017, and in December 2020 was promoted to European editorial director of Vogue. Prior to that, he was creative and fashion director of W and has contributed extensively to American Vogue and Italian Vogue. Welcome to the podcast, Edward Enifel. Thank you, Pam. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Edward. Finally. Finally, you have me here. Well, I've been stalking you. I've been trying to get you on the podcast since this started last year. And so finally, I get you all to myself for however long this lasts. We made it. We did make it, right? Thank you for doing this. And I want to start by saying congratulations on your book. Thank you. I want to start at the beginning, though, for us at least. I feel like right off the bat, you and I had an immediate chemistry. I remember uh, I had scheduled a coffee with you. I believe we were in Milan for Fashion Week. In Milan, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I had heard stories about you and I knew we were meeting for coffee. And and I just want to kind of paint the picture for our listeners. I walk in and you were immediately on such a high because I think you were coming off of your wedding and you actually talk about it in the I press of your book. Married. Right? I mean, yeah. big... Oh my mo- God, was it a few days before? Yes, you had literally was had it? come from your honeymoon. Yes, and yes, I was yes, like, what yes. are you doing here? And you're like, yeah, well, you know, I had to be here. But you were on such a high and, and I would I would love it if you would like just take a second, first of all, to talk about how much you loved me right away, but then also to of talk course. about... you Tell our listeners about that magical time and how it felt to be you know, surrounded by your friends and family and to marry Alec, your partner, after more than, is this true, 20 years together? Yeah. Can you believe it? We took that long, basically. I mean... I I mean, I remember I was in Milan and, you know, I heard there was this incredible woman who'd taken over. (laughs) I'd come she was a badass, Pam. And I think we kept sort of emailing briefly and to me had this meeting and Milan, and you walked in and you were not what I expected. Oh, what did you expect? I was like, I was, exp- I don't know. I was expecting someone quite conservative, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. soft-spoken. And you walked in with your shirt, sleeves rolled up, shirt open. And literally, it was love at first sight. I remember we sat, we were there for hours. We really were. We were breaking it down. We were you- literally there. And you told me about your kids and I told you about my life. And it, it was just incredible to meet to meet a gay woman yeah. with three kids just doing her doing her thing. And I remember texting Roger and Anna going, oh my God, Pam's a badass. I like her a lot. First of all, thank you for what you said. And I equally, first of all, I've always admired you greatly. Um, and, and not just because of what I had read and what I had heard, but you are legitimately so accomplished. And it was just a bonus that you were an amazing person to sit down with and someone I'd want to have a drink with. That I just look at as like an amazing, like, I don't know, cherry on top. But there we were (laughs) just a couple days after your wedding, which, by Mm -hmm. the way, I don't know if I ever asked you who proposed. Was it you or him? Well, it's it's a funny one because it's over over the past 20 years or whatever, I would ask and it wasn't in the right (laughs) 
tone or the right place or <laughs> and then for this time was 22nd of the second 22 my okay. birthday and he was like oh let's get married and I was like well I have to ask you then and I did it but the thing is when you've been together for that long when you have to kind of hold back the laughter right right, right. for sure but it was brilliant so yes I did ask you did ask the that. right way this time I did, did you did you exchange rings right there or did that come later believe that we'd bought the rings a year ago <gasps> really we knew we were going to do it and we just bought the rings a year ago have them made so they were there ready to go yeah it was just, just the right day it was just in the drawer well it's funny and go ahead my birthday no better day than your birthday to get married you know it's funny when Lindsay and i got married which was like back in 2008 we did not know anybody. We didn't know any other queer couples that were married. Nor, nor So we didn't even know who oh. was supposed to propose and like how it was supposed to go. And so I ended up doing the proposing. And that's like a long story in and of itself. So when I'm on your podcast, I'll tell you that whole story. But the, yes. but the funny part of this story is when we were getting married, now we've been together 18 years, um, we were talking about our vows. Oh, and, sorry, no, yeah. And she said to me, you know, when we get up there in front of everyone, I'm going to say for as long as I possibly can. And I was like, I'm sorry, you're gonna say what? She's like, I'm gonna <laughs> tell everyone that I wanna be with you for as long as I possibly can. I'm like, no, you're not gonna say that to anybody. I was like, that is the least romantic thing I've ever heard. But the funny thing is 18 years later, which will be 18 years in February, it was probably wow. the most like, like well, honest, clear, vow that anyone can make because you really do feel like every day you wake up and you make a choice to be with someone and it really is after three kids for as long as you possibly can for whatever it's worth but anyways so you are coming off of this unbelievable wedding and you know a lot of your I don't know the connection that we had in that moment was obviously about our time at Condé Nast but also you know yes. having these amazing people in our lives I wanted to ask you lives. yeah before we get into your early career you know how, like, where do you put Alec in that relationship, you know, balance between work and is, does he ground you? Is 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 he someone that is he the person that you can go home to every night after work and be like, oh, my God, this just happened. Like, what what role does he play? I mean, Alec, you know, we met in our 20s. Yeah. So just quite quite a long time ago. And anybody who knows Alec knows he's very he's very shy. He's very quiet, very grounded. Mm -hmm. Not really one for small talk, but it's very sort of great when you're one-to-one -one with him, mm -hmm. like an old soul. So for me, he keeps me grounded. Um, doesn't matter what day I've had, doesn't matter how I come home and it's just, it's just home. Yeah. You know, he just, he's just got a great way of diffusing mm -hmm. any tensions and he's very wise. He really challenges me because he'll always say, you know, I like this. And I'll be like, but everybody likes that. I don't care. I like this. I'm telling you the truth. So he's very grounded. He's very, yeah, he's my heart. So sweet. What's your sign? Pisces. And what is he? Scorpio. <gasps> uh, Astrologically, supposed to be the perfect combination. Yes, you both water signs. I'm a Cancer, so yeah. I'm a water sign too. So that's probably why we all get along ah. so well. Um, my wife. You know what's really what's. What's really weird about Scorpios is that I think they've, they just, they observe. That's Alex's sign. They observe. Mm -hmm. They observe. And then one day they just go, you did this. Yeah, they're very passionate. But they keep, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they keep it inside a lot. And aggressive too. I have so. two, my two of my boys are Scorpios. 
Jeez, when they want he's, he's not <laughs> They're not afraid. So let's talk about your early career and and your family a little bit. So a lot of your memoir, which is unbelievable, by the way, covers your early career, you. how you came to the UK from Ghana at age 11, and how also you got your start in fashion, which, by the way, I did not know this, being discovered on the tube, where you were like the literally tube, yeah. riding the train, which is just wild to me that your your illustrious career started out in such a way. Can you tell our listeners a little about how that happened? So, as you said, I was born in Ghana, which is the coast of West Africa. My father was uh, a major in the army, the United Nations Army. Yeah, and that's crazy. We had a sort of a really lovely, you know, sort of middle class life on a military base in a town. And then, of course, there was a coup. Um, and in Ghana, these coups happen when somebody comes, takes over the government by force, essentially. And we had to leave. My father had to leave because his life was in danger. So we moved to London um, when I was 13. And, I mean, it was strange, Pam. It was just like, one minute I'm in the, con- I'm in the country where everyone's black. Yeah. Next minute, we're in a country where we were hardly any black people. So for me, that was in itself something that was quite strange. Did you notice that right away? Like, was it that? Yeah. Yes. Because don't forget, where I grew, where I, when, when, where I grew up, doctors, lawyers, yeah. um, the president, so everybody was black. So when I got to England and realized that, oh my God, so being black is seen as different. I mean... Yeah. You know, you're not even to be a high, expected to be a high achiever. I thought, that's that's not me. I come from a country where everything's possible. Yeah. So I remember, you know, being in London, it was quite difficult. There was a lot of us. We didn't have much money. and But we were happy. Six kids. Oh, my God. And so, oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> what a wait, blast. Where are you in this? Where are you in that range? <laughs> Number five. Number five. The one that always got ignored. Oh, uh, not anymore, Edward, not anymore. Not anymore. Oh, you want to bet? <laughs> and I remember, yeah, 13. And three years later, I was on my way to school. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, saying to my mother, I wanted to get contact lenses because I'd worn these huge glasses my whole life. So I was wearing my new pair of contact lenses and I got stopped on the train by a really great stylist called Simon Foxton. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to model for him. And I forced my mother to call him back. And that really was how I started. My journey began that day on the train. And like, did you, when when he approached you on the train, first of all, did you even realize or do you have any, why did you want to do it in that moment? Like, what was it, what was it about his inquiry of modeling that was exciting to you at age 13? Well, I I remember thinking to myself, well, I didn't really know what fashion was. I have to be honest. My mom, my mother was a seamstress, so I knew how to make clothes. And I knew about her clients, and I knew that women loved dressing up. So that I always knew. But when I was stuck, I don't know, just something inside me was... just knew I had to do this. I don't know why, because I remember going home, and, you know, at 16, pressing my mother and really pressing her. She was like, no. and But I wouldn't stop. And, I, and now... I just think maybe it was, I don't know, it was just destiny. Yeah. But eventually she gave in. Eventually <laughs> she gave in. She checked on the photographer, Nick Knight. And I bet she did. 
See, she wasn't like, <laughs> you, were, you were being ignored then. And she was like, wait, what is going on here? And then let me ask you a question. So how long did you model for? And how did we how did that get you from because I, you know, eventually you became the youngest fashion director ever at ID, which I knew. But can you just tell me a little bit more about what happened between getting discovered on the train and becoming the youngest fashion director ever at ID? So when I was discovered, I was also at what we call college, which is sixth form, not university. Mm-hmm. You guys call it college, right? Yes, university we do. College. Yes. So I was at school, essentially, and I joined an agency, Dolphin. So I'd, I'd, I'd model, then I'd go to school, but then I discovered this whole fashion crowd. So I'd want to hang out with them. So from 16 to about 18, I was modeling until I got the job. But even when I got the job at ID, I would still model a few times, you know, here and there. Because back, back then, things were very different. Mm-hmm. I didn't make any money. So I still model here and there for bits of cash. So overall, it was like, that two years. But in those two years, I learned about styling. I learned about photography. I learned about, I mean, I was like a sponge, you know, soaking everything up. Can you believe I just come from Ghana, how many, however many years ago? Yeah. Three years ago. And there was this beautiful, bright world that has just opened up. Do you think you were always creative and this kind of just opened that part of you up? I mean, if you hadn't been discovered on the train, like where where might you have ended up? I'm very curious. This is so funny. I, I was always obsessed with sort of literature and English uh-huh. literature and reading. And um, so I thought I was going to end up being a lawyer. I mean, I went to university, I dropped out and my, my major was politics, but I was also studying English literature. And Pam, you're going to love this. The other day, yeah, my teacher from school when I was 13, sent me a picture and a letter. And she said, it was, it's the longest letter I'd ever seen. So beautiful. She said, I thought you were going to be an English literature teacher. I didn't think you were going to end up in fashion because you were so quiet and so shy and reserved. <laughs> I love that. Did you remember this teacher? I mean, I wrote back to her. Yeah. I, I do, but I don't remember so well. But I, I, I remember... When she described herself, it was amazing. That is amazing. Well, let me ask you this. So then you become the youngest fashion director ever at ID. What was that experience like in that moment in time? Um, like, what, what was that like? Did you, were you coming into your own? You felt like you had learned a lot about styling and photography, obviously being a model, but now you're on the other side of the camera. What was that like for you? scary <laughs> I was petrified but I remember you know I I learned everything I could so fast I learned about how a magazine works from writing the cover lines to shooting the image with the photographer to doing the shopping pages to, to the ad department we you know we had these ID club nights where we'd go around the country giving the magazine away so people would advertise in the back. So I really learned hands-on. And you know, what do they say? Fake it till you make it? (laughs) I was 18 and acting like I was 30 years old. (laughs) And I just, you know, I faked it. I learned. And every day was exciting. Really, it was really exciting. I was learning so much. I think that people have a perspective. I think a lot of our listeners have a perspective that accomplished people like you, like always knew what they were doing. You know, they don't realize the amount of risk that you have to take and that, you know, you're building while flying, like you're, you know, to your point, faking it, well, you know, until you make it and that, 
you know, honestly, I feel like we do that our entire careers to a certain extent. You know, I still feel like I'm faking it till I make it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're just doing that until, you know, you can, you know, learn from your mistakes and use that to yeah. go on to the next. You know what I mean? Um, but I think what's also really interesting was during this time and, and, you know, you talk about this a little bit in your book. You know, I know it was a formidable time in your life. And in this time, you met your circle of sorts, right? From Naomi Campbell to Steve McQueen. I mean, this is kind of an amazing circle to Pat McGrath. How did they help to shape your life and career? Yeah, I mean, I always say you should always find your tribe. And I remember sort of early 90s, sort of, I was always, I was the only one. I was whatever you call it, the chosen one, the token, you know, the only one. And I remember the just only one what? Pat, the only black person yeah. in such a position, um, you know, only person of color sort of working in a magazine at that time in the UK. And I just knew that for me, it wasn't about just being the only one. Mm -hmm. It was just about bringing, bringing people up with me, bringing people from sort of different backgrounds up with me. So when I met people like Pat and Naomi and, you know, the hairdresser Michael Bodie, Ben Skirvin, they became my tribe. And I brought them up. We all came up together. We were all young. We were all hungry. I mean, Naomi wasn't Naomi Campbell today. Mm -hmm. She was, she was doing her thing, but together, all of us just really had each other mm -hmm. to go back to and sort of compare notes and, and, you know, seek advice from each other. And we still do that to this day. Really? You know, mm -hmm. we still do. No, no, we still do. All of us still, you know, what, what do I do in this situation? You know, it's, it's very important to find your travel. That's what I say to young people. Find your tribe, mm -hmm. you know, it's, they're there for you in creative moments, you know, moments that are great, moments when you're down. Yeah. The right people will always lift you up. And do you feel like when you were at that time kind of unique in, in number one, your talent, but also, as you just referenced, being the only kind of like black man in your role. What did that feel like exactly? I mean, obviously you were hyper aware of it. You were aware of it the second you moved to the UK from Ghana. I mean, is that something that, you know, made you in a way who you are and building the circle around you is kind of what helped motivate you and having other people that were going through exactly what you were going through? Yeah. I mean, for me, I always, you know, I, you know, like you said, I come, I came from another country. Mm hmm where everybody was black and everything was possible. Then I went to school where I was told, mm, it's very hard for black people to be able to do this. It's very hard for black people to be able to succeed. Mm -hmm. But I was like, that's not going to stop me because where I come from, the president's black. Yeah. So with that, <laughs> yeah. so with that in mind, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, someone told me a story the other day about Sidney Poitier, who I didn't realize came from the islands. And he came to America and he won all these awards. And he always said, you know, I come from a country where everything's black. So I'm not going to play these roles that black people are supposed to play. So for me, it was just like, you know, let me just bring my friends up with me. Yeah. And yeah, we just achieved a lot together. You know, and I also learned so much from, from Naomi, who'd grown up her whole life or Pat, who'd grown up her whole life in South London. So we learned a lot from each other. But for me, it was very much about being part of something greater, being part of something bigger than myself.
you were, let's just say, tapped to take over as editor-in-chief of British Vogue in April of 2017. And this was significant for fashion and for publishing, for Connie Nass, and for you personally. I, I just have to say this as someone that, again, um, has quite the admiration for what you've achieved. But I don't know if everyone, if anyone realizes that you were the first male editor, the first black editor, and the first gay editor to ever hold this position. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of firsts, by the way. But I think it's such a it's such a testament, Edward, and but also it's so important, right? Because whoever comes after you won't have to be the first of any of those things. Yes. You know, you, yeah. you're paving a, a road and you're still building a circle as we speak. And we're going to come back to that circle in a minute because I have some questions. I don't think our circles look that similar. Mine are not as impressive as yours. Let's just say that. But what I want to <laughs> talk circles about, <laughs> my circles are fine. But um. I wanted to ask you about that moment when you were tapped. What was it like for you to get that call? And when I say call, I'm referring to the inside scoop you got from Diane von Furstenberg that you had the job. Can you talk about that for a minute? Because, I mean, honestly, when I got my first job, I, I don't recall that uh, <laughs> that happening in my world. Go ahead. So, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, my predecessor had left and I'd been for a couple of interviews and I had heard that there were every editor in England was going was up for that job. But to be honest with you, Pam, I just thought, well, those things you said, black, gay, working class, I'm from England. I don't think I would ever get the job, to be honest, straight up. Mm-hmm. So when I got the call from Jonathan Newhouse um, after two interviews that I got the job, it was a great time. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go home. Because I was living in New York at the time, working for W. I'm going to go home. They're going to love me. I'm going to, you know, bring everything I've learned. And then I got back home and the press gave me a whopping. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Why? Who is this? It was like, who? Because I guess I'd left England for a while, for about 10 years or something. I've been living in New York. So it was like, who is this black man or who is this man who thinks who's got this job? And the irony was they, you know, they, I was supposed to be the outsider, but ultimately mm-hmm. I was the ultimate insider. I've been in fashion since I was 16 years old, my whole life. Yeah. But also it was a time when they, there were cliches like, you know, black models on covers don't sell. Um, most magazines really had one Eurocentric idea of what, of what a magazine should be. And, you know, I came in and I thought, you know, let's, let's, let's reflect what's in the world, what we saw in the world, diversity, mm-hmm. inclusion, you know, mm-hmm. women of all ages, races, sexuality, shape, age. For me, that's the world we lived in. So I thought, let's reflect it. And now it seems like, oh, no brainer. But at that time, it wasn't the, the done thing. So anyway, we set about to do it. And thank God, you know, one, Condé Nast were very, very incredible in supporting that vision. Nobody, and I can say not one person said, ever came up to me and said, oh, what are we doing? If they did, they didn't tell me. I'm sure there was conversation in the background. Right. But nobody said I, I couldn't do this. So really, I was lucky to have that, that confidence. And then the world was ready. So, you know, the advertisers followed and the world was really happy that Vogue could really speak to every woman out there. And, um, and you know, it's been great to see a whole industry embrace the idea of diversity and inclusivity. And I'm very, very happy that I, you know, I didn't lose my job after a month or two. 
Well, can I? So <laughs> Which is like, what I thought was going to happen. I, was, I thought the world wasn't ready. <laughs> Why do you think you got that job in 2017? I mean, given what you just described, I mean, yeah. what what do you think was the catalyst for you getting that role? I mean, you know, I, I have, like I said, I, by then I'd been in the industry for so long. I'd mm-hmm. worked, I'd worked almost, God, 20 years at ID, 10 years at Italian Vogue, seven years at American Vogue. I'd been at W, was creative director for six years. So my, my, I think my work probably showed that I could do the job, but I also felt that maybe the time the world was changing, you know, yeah. I don't know. But well, I know that, you know, I went, I went for an interview and I wasn't, I was very vocal. <laughs> who, who, who interviewed you? I was interviewed by Albert Reed. Okay. And um, Nicholas Coleridge. Okay. And I was very vocal of, about what I thought Vogue should be. You know, something that real women mm-hmm. everywhere could relate to. And I didn't think I was getting the job anyway, so I had nothing to lose. And again, I don't know if you actually answered this part of the question. So is it true that Diane von Furstenberg actually called you and told you that you got the job? Oh, yes. Basically, Diane's very close to Jonathan Newhouse. Okay. Who's the chairman. And I've known Jonathan since I was about 20 years old. His wife, Ronnie, is one of my dear friends. And I remember I was out in Paris at Natalia Vodianova's party and Diane called me and said, you need to get here now. I was like, because I think you've got this job and you need to come. And I was like, Diane, okay. So literally left the party, raced over. We sat at the end of Diane's bed making notes. And I remember she said to me, you need to find somebody who can really sell your vision. Somebody mm-hmm. who can really, you know, understand what you do from, from the publishing side. A few issues later, um, I asked Jonathan if I could, you know, work with Vanessa Kingari, who was a young publisher who was also at GQ starting. And I think Jonathan already had that in the work. So we ended up working together. And I know Vanessa's part of your team. And yes, love her. It was her. a great, great working relationship. I don't even think I knew that backstory. Let me ask you this. So you were referencing and I was, you know, so now you're in the job, right? And as a member of many diverse communities, was it a responsibility that you felt you had to represent everyone, right? Because again, you were the first male, gay, black editor of Vogue. And you were talking about a world in which, you know, you wanted to portray inclusivity. You wanted the world to look the way the world actually is, right? For your first issue of British Vogue, you chose a British black model You've featured Judy, right? Yes, amazing. You've also featured Judy Dench at 85 on the cover. Mm-hmm. In a world notorious for featuring an elite set of models, designers, stylists, photographers, you constantly push the envelope and make a statement. You're not afraid to take risk and to create a platform for the vision that you had, which even got you the job. So my question is, like, how did you know what you were doing? How did you make those decisions? What was the community saying to you at that time when you were putting an 85-year-old on the cover? What was the community saying to you at the time that you were, you know, taking the risks that you were taking that clearly weren't happening around you? And what did it feel like for you? I mean, for me, I just remember that I thought, why shouldn't there be a woman in her 80s on the cover when COVID happened? And sort of women over the age of 60 were being sort of asked to stay at home. And I was like, no, let's just show the beauty of women. Let's show the beauty of, you know, gay women, the the beauty of curvy women. Mm -hmm. 
the beauty of Black, Asian, you know, East Asian women. Because for me, that's what makes the world what it is today. Mm-hmm. These are the women who make, who, who run the world, essentially, as, as Beyonce would say. So for me, it was very important to also shine a light on people who are othered, right? People who are always seeing us on the outside. It was very important for me that they looked in the magazine and saw themselves. Because all I know is, if you can see it, you can be it. Right. But I also have a lot of empathy from when I was growing up from my mother. You know, my mother's dressing room was filled with women of all shapes and sizes, all skin tones. So I loved women from, from a very, very young age. And I, I was also a stylist for, what, 30 years. So my job really was working with designers, with advertising agencies to, to create sort of incredible images of women. So my life has always been essentially about women. So when I even hear that, oh, you're a man, for me, I, I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> so what? <laughs> amazing do you you, but like i have to ask because again all of these firsts right um you you are taking some calculated risk this is vogue right you got the job back in 2017 this was you know before inclusivity was like on trend yes edward okay um i feel like i can say that as two people at conde nast right was there a part of you that was like, I could lose my job for this? I'm not going to, you know, the reality is what you, what was happening on the newsstand at that time did not look like what you were doing. I mean, I remember when I got the job, I said, I'll probably get fired in three months. But for me, if I'm going to get fired, I want to get fired for something I believe in. 100%. Anybody who knows me knows, you know. And also when you go back to my work from when I was a teenager, it always been about inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't just start at Vogue. It's something I've championed my whole career. But the beauty of doing it at Vogue was I just knew that, okay, if we're to tell the world that there's beauty in diversity, we still have to keep the level, that Vogue level, that Vogue lens, which is the highest lens. So everything is filtered through a Vogue lens. It's never cheap. Mm-hmm. It's never tawdry. It's always elegant. So when you put diversity through that lens, that creates what we used to call New Vogue. We used to do a hashtag called New Vogue. I love it. But we never let down the standards of what Vogue is, which is the ultimate best. So really, that that was it. Do you consider yourself an activist? Oh my God, I get asked this all the time. No, I'm not considering myself an activist, but I do, I do know what's right. I do believe in what's right. And you asked me earlier... Mm-hmm if was a burden. For me, it's not really a burden because I've always seen the world like that. I've always seen the beauty in, you know, people who weren't necessarily seen as that. Yeah. Or a group of people who weren't necessarily seen as that. Well, doesn't it doesn't yeah. seem like you know any other way, right? This is who you are. <laughs> I, don't, that's, I don't know any other way. You know what they I mean? call me stupid. <laughs> I mean, I remember someone said, like, you got this magazine. I mean, it could have gone really wrong, but I just knew that this was what it had to be. Yeah. You know, also having, you know, I'm black, I'm gay, I'm working class, I'm a refugee, all those things. So, you know, I'd already been, what does it, I'd already lost everything. I'd lost the home. I'd, I left home when I was kicked out. So for me, fear is not an option. Mm-hmm. It's never an option with me. And I'm not scared to take a step into the unknown. So thank God it paid off. That good. And it has. And you've had quite a successful career at Vogue. 
before we move off of Vogue, you've had some pretty big calls. So, for example, um, there was a Billie Eilish cover that broke the Internet. And for our listeners who don't know about this, this was, you know, another you've had a lot a variety of moments in which your (laughs) instincts have legitimately paid off. Why did you want her in that moment? Why do you think it went so viral again coming off of, you know, and I'm sure not all covers are created equal. But for this one in particular, what was the what was the engine that made this one go? I mean, for me, I I always feel like we have to sort of catch the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. What's what's in the air? With Billie, I knew that she had so many fans. You know, she was really setting the world alight. And I remember after our first conversation, when she said she wanted to sort of wear corsets and really show what was under her normal attire, I just saw a woman sort of growing up you know, coming to terms with who she was. So for me, we just gave her the platform and we worked on this idea together. But sometimes you can catch the moment just by feeling, I don't know, it's a gut instinct. It's a gut thing. You have to listen to your gut mm-hmm. that says something's about to happen. And sometimes it's not always right, but a lot of the time it does pay off if you listen. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And you have had um, quite a ride. You know, I think it's also interesting that you have this incredible as we were saying earlier, circle of supporters. You know, we talked about your friend Naomi and Pat McGrath, but you've your your circle has also expanded. I, re- I recall last week trying to get a call with you and you were busy with King Charles, so you couldn't talk to me. And then <laughs> when we were having breakfast in Paris, you were texting with Rihanna. I guess my question to you is, are these friends, is your inner circle all, does this come through the Vogue world or are these friends that you have on the side? Because like I said, my, my friends don't have those names. Oh, that's really great. Um, I mean, I, I've i known a lot of them from way before, from years and years. I mean, yeah. Rihanna, we formed a great relationship when we worked at W Magazine, when we did those covers there and Beyonce. But it's just people you kind of, you have something in common with, yeah. you, you really vibe with and you stay in touch with them. And there's so many others who are great to work with, but we don't have personal relationships. But mm-hmm. there's a few special ones where you're like, we're going to know each other for a long while. Just what like me you, and you. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. What do you think and it me is? me and you. It's just chemistry, right? It just comes down it's just, to like... It's just chemistry. It's yeah. chemistry. It's, you know, it's just a special something when you click, when it's a, like a family member or someone you feel you've known for a long time. Don't what? you have that sometimes? I, all the time. It's like, it's like you, someone you feel like you've known yeah, you forever. Somebody, yeah. You knew in a past life. Yeah. Question for you. This wasn't on the initial list of prep questions. So if this one yeah. is too out of left field, I don't think it is though. You've done incredible, you've had incredible covers at Vogue. You've gotten almost yeah. everyone I think you've ever wanted. Is there yeah. anyone that you have not had yet that you want to grace the cover of British Vogue? And if so, who is it? Well, there's one person we still haven't done, and that's Mrs. Obama. And no, you and Mrs. you have Obama. not gotten I know, her I know her, yes. I know her, but we haven't. Done it. So that's a good one to have. Okay. For the future. I mean, she might be available. <laughs> I hope she is. If you're listening. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle. What's up? What are you doing like next month? Exactly. All right. Well, before we get to our rapid fire section, I want to know what you do with your downtime. If you have any at all. I know you, you were telling me earlier, you and your, your amazing husband hadn't seen each other in a bit. But what is a perfect night or weekend for you and Alec? Does that ever happen between work and work and work? And your crazy Rolodex of friends? I mean, you know, I mean, I, Alec works as, you know, works as hard as I do. He's a director, so he's, 
busier than me. So that when we're together, we just try to switch off, just do normal, regular things, watch TV, play with the dog, go for walks, go to the cinema, just really sort of normal thing. We don't get to do it as often as mm-hmm. I'd like, but mm-hmm. when we do, we just switch off. Do you go out to dinner a lot? Every night. <laughs> do you have Almost. A, do you have a favorite I can't restaurant? Cook. Where do I go in the UK? In, in London, at the moment, in the moment, I love 22. 22, okay. What do we But love? I like the Wellesley as well. Oh, I love and, and like that place. Chinatown. <gasps> oh yeah. my God. The what are your favorite restaurants in New York? I mean, that's the problem. I feel like I struggle to find like the place. I mean, I always stay at the same hotel. I always stay at the Beaumont. I love the Wolseley. I love the vibe. I love the old kind of like post office feeling vibe. But I don't know. I feel like, I mean, the food game has gotten a lot better there, let's be honest. But I feel like it's constantly changing. <laughs> Not just chips. No, just for sure. What are you binge watching right now? So when you're not out to dinner, you guys are hanging out. What are you watching? What's your favorite show? Well, at the moment, I just binge watch The Watcher on Netflix. Really? Have you seen Industry? Oh, my God. I binge watched the first season and I've got the second season ready oh to go. Oh, my God. It's, it's so good. brilliant. It's so good. And it's in your neck of the woods. It's all about, like, yeah. what's going on in your world. It's, I, first of yeah, all, I and it reminds me of my friends. It reminds me of my friends who were bankers <laughs> in the 90s. I mean, those so were, I love industry. It's so yeah. good. Everyone, all my listeners it's should so go watch good. it right now. David Remnick was actually the person who told me about that show. And then I went home and watched it. So It's so good. Highly recommend it. Um, all right. Last question before rapid fire. What are you doing in five years? People love that five-year question, don't they? Well, I mean, like, I'm sure we look out into the future. You already wrote a memoir, so you can't even say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I always, what I always say is, you know, so long as, seriously, I've never made five-year plans. I've just gone from sort of one great thing to another. Yeah. And I know that if I enjoy what I'm doing, I'll just keep doing it. Like, I don't think like I have to, this is, and then I move on to here. It's like in the moment, I'm, I kind of live in the moment a lot. And, you know, the moment I love what I do, and that's enough for me. And that's enough for you. So you don't... And you know what? Sometimes those five-year things, sometimes they don't work out. Well, you know, listen, you know? I, you may, I, I was thinking <laughs> when you were talking to King Charles last week that maybe you were trying to, like, move in that direction. <laughs> but you don't have to tell our listeners right now. That's all good. Um, all right. We're going to do a quick rapid fire. All right. Um, okay. And so I don't know if you've listened to the other episodes, but this is called... Tell me what you really think. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that will be hard to answer, but we want honest answers only. All right? You up for it? Yeah. Okay. This is a real serious one. So first one, Beyonce or Rihanna? Wow. Talk about kicking off with a tough one. I have to say both. You have to say both. Why? I really have to say both. They're both so talented, so generous, so kind. So I'll say both. You'll say both. What keeps you up at night? Worrying, worrying about, you know, the platform, worrying if we're, do- we're doing the right things, mm-hmm. worrying if, you know, just worrying about work, essentially. But in a good way, too. Do you think Twitter is going to become irrelevant? I mean, I never really engage in Twitter. I kind of use Instagram more. Do you think Instagram is going to become irrelevant? I think everything has its time. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing last forever so I'm sure yeah they'll have their time what gets you out of bed in the morning meditation <laughs> really that gets you out of yeah, bed yeah I meditate every morning I wake up at 5 30 I meditate for 20 minutes then I go to the gym do you do it with an and app? that's my that's my moment do you do you, yes I need yes. that app I need I've been trying I'll, meditation. I'll send it to you I, I it's transcendental I, I've it's heard. transcendental no I have to get so it into gives it you all the time but I do that 
Then I go work out and that's my time. It's what gets me ready for the day. If I don't do that, I'm sort of out of sorts, really. It helps you focus, yeah? Yeah. What is the best compliment you've ever received? What's the best compliment I've ever received? That's a tough one. I guess, you know, you're a good person. That's a good I like, I like that. that one. I like that. What's your favorite cover moment ever? Oh my God, so many. You know what? It might. Or one of. I'll might, make it easy for you. One of, yeah. I remember, you know, I talk in my book about having a lot of um, eye operations because I, I had a retinal detachment, happened four times. And the last time I remember, I was so depressed at home, you know. Mm hmm. In darkness, you know, and um, I was speaking to Rihanna on the phone and I, I remember saying to her, I think everyone's forgotten about me. And she said, when you come out, we're going to do a cover that's going to shake the world. And it was, I was at W Magazine at the time, which is also another Condé Nast publication. Mm -hmm. And we did this incredible cover of Rihanna as the queen with gold dripping from her eyes that. and the crown. And that really came from the darkest, one of my darkest Period. So that's very special. Oh, I love that. I remember that cover, by the way. It was really amazing. Last question. What is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Stop worrying so much. Things will be okay. See, just imagine I one day you'll be... I was a warrior. You still are. One day you'll be 80 yeah. looking back at your time now and you'll say... <laughs> be like, Stop worrying. <laughs> Stop worrying so much, right? No, it's yeah. totally true. That's what also fuels us, though, at the same time. Yeah, just like that, you know, when you're a teenager, that mm -hmm. constant mind sort of not stopping and yeah, it's better now, let's just say. You've done just fine. Edward, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. This has been an absolute oh. pleasure and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for having me, Pam. Looking forward to See seeing you, you very soon. Me too. Lots of love. Thanks for joining us. Keep a lookout for our next season coming soon. Please subscribe and share with your friends. Cheers. Tell Me What You Really Think is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. I'm Pam Druckerman.